0: Tonight we're going to begin the book of Hebrews. I'm calling the book of Hebrews "One Way," as as we'll see why as as we'll as we get into the book. I haven't mastered titles yet, and so that, that's like a you know that's like a seminary master's degree, and I I haven't attained, as Paul said, I haven't yet attained to that yet. So I'm I'm going with one way though, so starting with that. So let's pray, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I love that passage, Lord, that Paul gives us. that says, even if we're faithless, you remain faithful. You will not deny yourself. Thank you for the promises, Lord, that you've given us, that they are yes and amen. And that, Lord, that you are continually walking with us, speaking to us, sanctifying us, Lord, through your word and through your spirit. And so, Lord, we just pray that you continue that work tonight. Lord, and we take this book um, before us, Lord, and we want to dive into it. Lord, we ask that you would show us, Lord, what the message is, Lord, you have for us. Some of us have maybe have read it before. Maybe some of us have never read it. But I pray, Lord, that at the end of this book, we would all have known you more. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I want to begin by giving an overview and a summary of the book of Hebrews. You know, this book... is kind of different than Paul's letters that, that he wrote, you know, to Timothy and also the different epistles. Sometimes Paul will give you the message right off the bat, you know, as you read epistles like First and Second um, Thessalonians, First Corinthians. But the general epistles are a little different, and the message, the message is kind of scattered throughout the book. And so I think it kind of helps us to kind of hammer it down so we can see where the Lord is going to take us as we work through this book. So let's begin by talking about the author of this book. Now, as most of you know, the author of this book is unknown. He's, he's not named in this book. But while the author isn't named, we do know a lot of things about him. First, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as all the writers of the New Testament. So regardless of who the author was, when he wrote this letter, the original audience received that letter. They knew exactly who he was. And they received it as the word of God. And so they, they understood that it was um, you know divine scripture. Now I'm told something interesting. In Hebrews 11.32, Dr. Frutenbaum says that this writer uses a masculine form of Greek, which scholars point out is an evidence that it was probably a male writer. So I don't know Greek, but I thought that was interesting. I just wanted to share with you. You can amaze your friends and your neighbors uh, with that. Now Hebrews 13.24 says that he actually wrote this letter from Italy. And so if you're Italian, you can, you know, you can represent here. Uh, Italy, Rome at that time was really pagan, so it's not much representing going on. But, but nevertheless, you know, I don't know if he was playing soccer there or what, but uh, we do know that he was writing. Now, this writer was a Jew who lived in the diaspora. He was a Jewish Christian. And we know he was a Jew because he had an intimate knowledge of Judaism. I mean, as we're going to look through this letter, I mean, he basically gives us a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. You know, the things that he knows about sacrifice and offerings and and, and God's dealing with Israel. Um, he's a Jewish uh, writer. And we know that he was a missionary as well. He referred to Timothy in Hebrews 13.23 as his companion. And so he was well known by the early church. He was writing under, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he was a companion to Timothy. Now, the date of this writing is written before 70 AD. So, people say, well, when was it written? Well, we know for a fact it was written before 70 AD because the writer is going to often refer, to, refer to, uh, uh, to temple sacrifice. And the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And so there would be no way that he can talk about sacrifices going on at, you know, if the temple was destroyed. And so we know it was written before 70 A.D. Most scholars will place this book from 64 to 69 A.D. Written in between that period. Probably somewhere around um, 66, maybe 65. Now, who was this writer writing to? Well, he was writing to Hebrew or Jewish Christians. These were people that were saved out of Judaism. They were now walking with the Lord. They left the traditions uh, of Judaism, and they were following Christ, walking you know, as the body of Christ. Now, some good commentators actually try to say that these folks were non believers. And, and we'll see why as we work through the epistle. But they say, well, yeah, they're not really believers. They're kind of like people who made a profession of Christ, but they never really were saved. But when you read through the book, That's not really the case. You don't really see that as you work through this letter. For example, the writer told these believers in chapter six that they needed to mature in their faith. And by that time, they should have been teachers. A non-believer can't be a teacher of the word. They don't understand spiritual things. Also, the writer in Hebrews 2.3 links their salvation to himself. He says, hey guys, we have the same salvation. How shall we neglect if we you know, escape such a great salvation. And so they were saved just like the writer was. Also we're told that they were called holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, and he said Christ was their high priest. That's chapter three, verse one. These believers are said to have tasted the heavenly gift and became partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's Hebrews 64. And so it's clear that these folks were believers. Now why do some folks have a problem with them being believers well as we 'll see there 's some passage in here, passages that are kind of hard to interpret, and often people will take these and they 'll automatically jump and say, "Well, a person can lose their salvation and and there is no repentance and Some people get around that by saying well it 's re- re- you know referring to people who aren 't saved, and so it, it makes it easier for them but it 's referring to neither. You know, first of all, you know, it's, it's not referring to a non believer, and it's not referring to the fact that believers can just lose their salvation. Let me just say this from the beginning. If a person is in Christ, and then you are secure in your salvation. As we talked about last week, Peter said, You are kept by the power of God. Now, obviously, a person has to make a true profession of faith, they have to truly believe in the Lord and accept Him. I mean, it's not just easy believism. But a person needs to believe on Christ and turn from their sins. And when they do, they're born again. And nowhere in the scripture do you see someone being unborn again you you know, know, because they mess up. And the problem was saying, well, they, yeah, a person can lose their salvation. At what point does a person lose their salvation? What sin is it that does it? And so nobody can give an answer for that. The believer is secure in Christ. We're, we're held by the Lord. No one can pluck us out of his hand. And so, you know, so as we'll see, we'll, we'll answer these different things as, as we go through this book. Now concerning the location of these believers, where they lived, the best theory I believed is they lived outside of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea. Hebrews 12.4 says that these believers had not yet resisted to blood and we know that the church in Jerusalem had already been shed, you know, their blood had already been shed. Stephen had his blood shed. Also the apostle James Had his blood shed. Now, while that was so, they had to live close to Jerusalem because the Hebrew tradition and also the Hebrew sacrificial system had a strong pull on their lives. And so as we'll see, many of these folks were saved out of the Hebrew tradition. You know, at that time the Jews came from two different cultures. There were Galilean Jews, you know, Hellenists, and there were Hebrew Jews. The Hebrew Jews were the strict traditionalists. They kept the oral law and they were very strict. And, um, and also, you know, they kept the sacrifices as did the, the Hellenist Jews, but, but they were more strict in their culture. These folks were probably Hebrew Jews. They were saved out of that culture. And um, but yeah, as we're gonna see, this sacrificial system, that culture still had a strong pull on them. And it was probably stronger because they were closer to um, Jerusalem. Now, let's talk about the background and theme of this book. Now, the basis of this writing is that these Hebrew Christians need, needed to be encouraged because they were under persecution. They were under attack from the enemy. I mean, they were under attack from, from many different ways. First, they were under attack from Rome. They believed in Christ. They would, know, you know, they would not bow the knee to Caesar. They were separated from the world and, and, and all of its wickedness, desiring to walk with the Lord. Because of that they were looked at as outcasts from the world. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. But their main attack was from their own heritage, from the Jews themselves. So here's why. Here's here's why. <laughs> Around AD sixty-four, Jewish freedom fighters began giving much resistance to the Romans who occupied the land. So there was little small, small spouts. Of wars going on um, around 64 AD. There was a full Jewish revolt in 66 AD. And these Jewish freedom fighters succeeded in ousting the Romans from the area of Palestine. And for a time, they even enjoyed a brief period of freedom until 70 AD when Titus and the Romans came in, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and killed you know, a, a bunch of Jews. And they, they took that area. Back over. Now, in the 60s and around 64 AD, this was a time of Hebrew patriotism. I mean, it was at an all-time high. You know, and so, you know, I mean, you know, they were rallying. They were rallying around their traditions, around their heritage, and this really caused a bad situation for these Hebrew Christians. And it really caused a hostile environment for them. You see, because they left Judaism. And they left, you know, that, those sacrifices, they were now following Christ. Because they followed Christ, they were excommunicated from the Jewish community. This includes being outcasts from their family, from their jobs, former friends that they grew up with, now they were hated by. And and just as Jesus said, he said, hey, you know, you're going to be hated by brothers and sisters, but you need to love me more. Just as Christ said, it was happening to them. And it didn't make things better that the nation around them was rallying, you know, in patriotism. But they weren't following that. They were called to live for Christ, to focus not on an earthly kingdom, but on a heavenly kingdom, whose maker and builder is God. And so, you know, so this was causing some hard times for them. They were facing emotional and both physical persecution. Yes, they had not yet died for their faith, but it was probably going to come but they were being physically persecuted. Now, what were these Jewish believers to do during this tough time? What was the fix? Well, a teaching began to arise among these Jewish believers, as it does today at times. The teaching arose that says, hey, you can go ahead and compromise for a while, and then after you compromise for a while, you can then come back to the Lord, repent, the Lord will forgive you, everything will be okay, and, and you can just move on in your faith. The compromise or the philosophy was this. Go ahead and return back to your culture, to the Hebrew, you know, to Judaism. Begin sacrificing again in the temple, going back through all your rituals and all that stuff. And when you do that, it's gonna cause peace. You know, you're gonna kind of alleviate your suffering. You're not gonna have to face this hostile environment anymore. And many who wanted peace at all costs, they wanted rest at all costs found this solution to be a good one. They're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Man, I can, if, if I can just alleviate my suffering and persecution, I mean, just by going in and starting to sacrifice again in the temple, by returning back to my heritage in this time of patriotism, well, this sounds like a good thing. Well, the writer got word of this. How did he get word of this? News travels quick in the New Testament. <laughs> somehow, somehow, word got to him. And I love these men in the Bible who had such a burden for the people of God. What would I have done if I would have got word? Oh man, they're crazy. What are they doing? Oh well, I'll pray for them kind of thing. No, the writer was stirred. Obviously he was under the inspiration of the spirit, but he was stirred to exhort them. Hey guys, that's not a good idea. And he shows them that the road that they're on is a one way road. I hate driving around downtown Visalia. I mean, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Downtown San Diego is even worse, even though San Diego's beautiful. I mean, wow. But I mean, one way streets, man, they drive me crazy. I mean, you know, it's like you get on, you're like, I can't go that way. It's a one way street and, th- and things like that. Now, they were on a good one way street. <laughs> that was the one way street that they wanted to be on. And the writer of the Hebrews is going to tell them that, really, in this epistle. He's going to tell them, hey, guys, the street that you're on is on a journey. And the signs are pointed forward. It's a one-way street. If you turn backwards and try to go back the other way, you're going to have signs of danger. Don't go that way. One thing I love about Columbia, and Alex will appreciate this, is whenever you're driving in Columbia, they have these signs with two cars, and they crash. It has like a little puff of smoke. You know, it's like, it's just a classic thing. Every time we go, we just love those signs. They're great little illustrations. And everybody understands them. If you, you know, if you do... You know, pass someone the wrong way, even though everybody does pass each other, you know, you're going to end up going heads up with somebody and and, and crash. And so to turn around and try to go backwards is to go the wrong way. The writer is going to show them, hey, we're on a one way street, and our focus is on the only way to heaven, which is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. In order to give us these warning signs, I want to point out um, what the writer says in a couple of different passages. And so I'm gonna take you through a couple passages and show you these warnings that this writer gives. And really, these warnings and, and, you know, and also Christ is gonna be really the theme of this book. It's gonna shape the message as we go through it. The first message and warning we see is in Hebrews 2, 1, 2 three. You can flip there or swipe there on your electronic device. Hebrews 2, 1, 2 three. Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through the angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so the writer, right off the bat, says, hey guys, if you're thinking about leaving your salvation and going back to Judaism, that's not a good idea. You see, if God in his justice disciplined the angels who did not follow his word and his will, and then will, won't he also, because he loves believers, discipline us if we neglect our salvation by turning away from it and going back to that sacrificial system? The second warning is given in Hebrews 3, 7-12. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so the writer says, hey guys, beware of this unbelief, of this hardening of your heart that you would even think about departing from the living God. Well, wait a second, don't they have God in their religion? Well, yeah, but God's revelation is through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, if you don't have me, you don't have my Father. You know, if you don't love me, you don't love my Father. It's very clear through his word. There was no going back. There's no compromise. The third warning is given in Hebrews 6, 1 through 6. The writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And so these warnings right here are very clear to these believers. Hey, guys, you have tasted the heavenly gift. You've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You can't go back and sacrifice again the temple. In doing so, is actually saying that you need sacrifice for your sin. It's like you saying that what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient. It's making Christ an open shame. Now, there's a historical passage behind these warnings here to these believers. And that warning is given to us in Numbers 13. Most of us are familiar with it. God led the children of Israel out of, you know, out of Egypt and he led them into the wilderness. And there, for some time, they stood at Mount Sinai and there the Lord gave them his law. He, gave, he established a priesthood. He established a tabernacle, the place that they worship. And once they were done with all that, he gave them a the traveling directions. He said, okay, guys, I want you guys to go to Kadesh Barnea stop there. And so they did that. They went to Kadesh Barnea, which is like a little oasis right, before, right by the Jordan River. Across that Jordan River would be the promised land that God would send them into. It was the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'd been waiting for that land. It was their land that God gave them. So they stopped there and they decided to send in spies into the land, 12 spies. And so two of those spies were Joshua and Caleb. And they went into the land and, and they spied it out and they found these amazing grapes, you know, and they, but they also saw these giants in there and so they were afraid of it. They were like, oh man, we don't want to go back in there. And so they came out in the 10 spies, not Joshua and Caleb. They gave this discouraging report to people saying, guys, if we go in there, we're going to die. I mean, you know, we're, we're going to be killed. I, I would say it's kind of like the warrior, what happened to the warriors, but I'm a warriors fan, so I can't say that. But actually it was a close series, so, so I'll have to... Have to think about them in our prayers. So, um, and so, you know, I so said, guys, if we go in there, we'll get killed. And so the people were discouraged and they failed to enter the land. They failed to enter the land. Now, what happened? Because they failed to enter the land, God brought judgment on that generation. God said, Because you have disobeyed me and did not enter the land you're going to wander in the wilderness until that entire generation dies off with the exception of Joshua and Caleb because they were obedient to me. Now, right after God said that, the people repented. They asked for forgiveness and God forgave them. God, and so they, they, and that whole generation wasn't lost and went to hell. No, God forgave them of their sin. But yet his physical judgment was still remaining on that specific generation. Theologian Arnold Fruttebaum points out something interesting. He points out that at different times throughout the Bible, it's possible for there to be a specific Jewish generation that actually reaches a point of no return in which no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And we see that here in the book of Hebrews, or in the book of Hebrews but we see it also in the Old Testament at Kadesh Barnea. You see, they repented, God forgave them, but yet physical judgment was still going to come on that generation. What about during the time of Jeremiah? Well, yeah, God was saving people, he was forgiving people, but because of the sin of Israel, God said, I'm gonna bring a nation to discipline you. No amount of repenting would would, would change that. Physical judgment will still come, but yet God was still saving people. What about during the time of Christ? Same thing happened. Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says, judgment's gonna come. You know, and, and so, yes, God is saving people, you know, and, and God would continue to save people, you know, in the New Testament, but judgment will come, and that judgment we know would come in seventy AD, when God would bring destruction to the temple there in Jerusalem and uh, you know, they'd be judged. There's also gonna be a future judgment called the Great Tribulation. No amounts of repentance can change the fact that the Great Tribulation is gonna come. It's gonna come as a judgment and a discipline to the nation of Israel to turn them back to God himself. And so the Hebrews, this passage, this book focuses on that. And, and, and the writer makes that very clear to these folks. And, and, and as we're gonna see in many of these passages, he's gonna say, hey, to turn back and to go back to Judaism is to go back to that generation who rejected the Messiah the generation who physical judgment is going to come. And that's why Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he said, repent, and what did he say? Be saved from this wicked generation. Be saved from this wicked generation. What generation? Well, the generation that rejected the Messiah. The generation which physical judgment was going to come. Now, the writer didn't know when the physical judgment was going to come, but nevertheless, nevertheless, judgment would come. So going back would not be losing your salvation, but would be putting yourself in a bad situation because you're identifying with that that um, generation, which is going to have physical judgment. The fourth warning is given in Hebrews ten thirty-five through thirty-eight. It says, "Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is a great reward, for if you have need of it, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and He who is coming will come." and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So not only would is this physical judgment coming on that generation, but to turn back, God has no pleasure in that. It's gonna be a loss of reward. You see, all believers are gonna stand before the reward seat of Christ. And so, in other words, being disobedient to the Lord's will and, and turning back would be basically a loss of reward for them. They're not going to experience all the blessing that they can when they stand before the Lord. They're going to miss out. And it's dangerous. It leads to discipline. And so, um, you know, so the writer continues to give them warning. Now, one more warning I'll give you. We all feel warned, don't we? (laughs) I, I feel very warned now. The fifth warning is in Hebrews 12, 25. It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, not me, but the Lord. For if they did not es- escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And so the writer is very clear. Hey, don't harden your heart. Don't refuse the word of the Lord. This exhortation that the Lord has given you continually through his word. Look at history. Look at what's going on. Compromise leads to disaster. It leads to d- destruction. It leads to discipline. And so rather than drifting away and turning their back on the Lord and on his will and on his word, they were to press forward. They were, they were on that one-way street. And it was a good one-way street. It was a road to blessing, the, the highway to heaven, right? Without Michael Landon. You know, it was, it was pressing forward for the Lord for his glory, now, not only were they on a one-way street, but their eyes should have been focused on Jesus, the one way to heaven. And that's really what the writer sums up in chapter 12, verse 12, or excuse me, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Here's what the writer says. He said, rather than turn away, he said, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had a race to run, just like you and I. The cross was set before the Lord. It was tough times for the Lord. But yet, nevertheless, the Lord didn't turn away from the will that the Lord had for him. Rather, Jesus went forward with joy and endured the cross despising the shame knowing that blessing would come he would sit down at the right hand of God and so you and I are on this journey walking with the Lord right we're on this one-way street and it's a one-way street of blessing we're to keep our eyes on Jesus who is our example he pressed forward and we're to follow his example we're not to look back but we're to press forward now, the writer focuses on Jesus much in this book. I don't want us to get the wrong idea that this book is only about rebuke and, and about warning. It is. The writer does warn us. But he warns us for a good reason, like a parent. I mean, you know, as, as a parent, you know, we have to warn our children, not because we're always mad at them, right? And we just want to be, you know, such a stick in the mud kind of thing. But we warn them because we love them and we want the best for them. And that's really what the writer focuses on in this book. He warns them because the best for them is to stay focused on Jesus. And he does that by making a contrast throughout the book. He's gonna show that Judaism was good, but Jesus is greater. And he shows that by presenting a number of contrasts throughout the book. And really, really, the main focus is Jesus. He warns them so they can keep their eyes on Jesus. He starts off by saying, the prophets were good, but Jesus is greater. The angels were good, but Jesus is greater. Moses was good, but Jesus is greater. Joshua and his rest was good, but Jesus and his rest is greater. Aaron and his priesthood were good, but Jesus and his priesthood is greater. The temple was good, man, but Jesus and our relationship with him is greater. The law was good, but the grace of God that we have through Jesus Christ is greater. And that's really the outline of the book. Next week we'll start with chapter one, verses one through three. Jesus is greater than the prophets. And then he goes on, Jesus is greater than the angels. And he's saying, hey guys, take, take what you have. Take every good thing that you have from, from, from Judaism that you wanna go back to and put it up next to Jesus. And I'm warning you, it's gonna be disciplined if you turn back, but man, if you'll just stay focused on Jesus, what you have in Christ is so much greater. So the original audience they were, they were faced with this thing. Would they compromise, would they turn back to Judaism? Now I can think it's pretty safe to say that none of us in here tonight are probably thinking about returning back to Judaism, right? <laughs> Hebrew sacrifice and things like that. Well, that's okay. Well, just the same as you and I, none of us are tempted to turn stones into bread like Christ was on the Mount of Temptation. None of us could have that because none of us have the ability to turn a stone into bread, right? The enemy's not that dumb. He's smart. He's not going to come to us and tempt us to turn stones into bread. We can't do that. But we'll, what will he, you know, but will he he will do is he'll tempt us to do other things, things that we do have the ability to do. And even so, you and I, we're not faced with compromise and turning back to Judaism. But nevertheless, in our age and our culture that we lived in, we are faced to compromise and turn back to the old life, to turn back to the world. We're tempted with 21st century struggles as we face our culture in the United States. Our temptation is often to compromise our faith and our morals, right? To rise above our morals and just, okay, I'm just going to be a patriot right now. And I might have to set aside my morals, but hey, as long as I'm a patriot and I'm representing my country, and then I'm okay. Well, no, we can't set aside our morals for patriotism. Christ comes before our country, right? Right? And, and Christ comes before everything. He's greater than that. Sometimes we're compromised and sometimes we're tempted to compromise our beliefs in light of so-called, oh, I'm gonna do the air quotes. I know, you know, <laughs> the air quotes, the, the, you know, the, the the teachings of today, such as science, for example. Well, you can't really believe Genesis 1 through eleven's literal that there was actually created in six literal days. You can't really believe in a global flood. What about the so-called teachings of science. Well, no, we can't compromise our beliefs because the world looks at us as if we're weirdos. No, we need to press forward because we know that Christ and his word is true. What about our witness? What about our witness? Yes, the world at times does look at us as, as weird when we talk to them about Jesus. I mean, just think about it. It should sound weird to them. I mean, they're entrapped in the world, right? They're living for themselves and for money and pride and, and everything else. And it's probably the same where you work as well. And then here comes a person, a Christian, who says, hey, you know what? You're a sinner. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again from the dead. And if you believe in that, God will actually live in you, and you'll be saved. To us, it's like, it's amazing. But for them, it's like, are you serious? Well, yes, I am serious. And so sometimes we think, well, I don't want to look like a weird Jesus freak telling people that. Well, we need to, you know, because that's our calling, that's our mission. The gospel is a beautiful thing because it's the power of God to salvation. I'm not downplaying the gospel at all, but I'm saying sometimes Christians are afraid to share their faith because they're afraid of looking like someone who lives an alternative lifestyle or something, right? But you know what? The world is gonna think that we're different and and let them bring it. That's okay. Jesus said, we're not of this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. We can't compromise our message for our own image. But rather, we need to make a stand and preach the word. I'm not saying we need to go out and be one of those crazy people and just start telling everybody they're going to hell. I mean, Christ used wisdom when he ministered to people and and he knew how to minister to people. But nevertheless, he spoke the word of the Father and did the works of the Father. So we need to press forward. The message is for us. Don't compromise. There is no turning back. We're on this one-way street. We need to press forward with the Lord and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Compromise is destructive. There's a lot of great examples, but one great one is in the book of Judges. You see, that generation, which died off, their children went in and took the land under Joshua. But what happened? When they got old, they also began to compromise. God brought them in the land, and they said, okay, we're in the land now. This is great. I know God put us in the land and told us that we're to do the rest. We're to beat out these pockets of resistance, but we're in the land now, so everything's okay. And they began to compromise and allow the enemies to exist with them. Well, the result of that was that when they died off, their children didn't know anything about the works of the Lord. And that rolls right over into the book of Judges. And we're told in Judges too that that generation who went into the land, when they died off, their children who didn't know the Lord, they began serving idols the astros, and the Baals, the baals, right? They began to compromise even more. A little compromise, regardless of where you are in your Christian life, is not good. It not only hurts you, but it also hurts others. And so whether you're just beginning your walk with the Lord and the Lord is just bringing you out of Egypt and now he wants you to enter the land, don't compromise, It only leads to disaster. Maybe you're at the end of your Christian walk. The Lord can take us home right now, right? Well, let's not settle back and compromise now. Let's finish the race that the Lord has called us to run. No turning back, right? The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. So this book will teach us to focus on Jesus. Even if something is good, Jesus is greater. And let's focus on him, keeping our eyes on the prize. Amen?